0: If you have your copy of scripture or in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 12 to invite you to turn there this morning, Hebrews 12, 4 through 6. This morning we'll be talking about god's divine discipline of his children a topic i'm sure everybody's really excited to hear about that's what we're looking at this morning hebrews 12 4 through 6 i'll be reading from the english standard version in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives. And as we look at this topic of discipline, Lord, I pray that it would speak to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject of God's discipline of his children is sometimes a difficult one to speak about. Before we get into it, I want to be clear this morning that God's children can never be punished for their sin. If they could be punished for their sin, then that would indicate a denial of the substitutionary, satisfactory, atonement of Jesus Christ for the sins of his children because Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He was our substitute. He paid the price for our sin. Punishment can never happen to a child of God, at least not in any judicial sense. God's children are never brought before God as judge and charged with guilt because our guilt was transferred to Christ and He took our punishment for our sin. However, let me be clear. While our sin cannot be punished and we cannot be condemned, we can be disciplined and there is a difference. We as believers now stand in a new relationship with God as a child to a parent and just like uh, we discipline our children so God disciplines us punishment and discipline both may have suffering and they may not differ a whole lot in the nature of punishment but there's a vast difference in the mind of the punisher and the relationship of the part of the person who is punished God will punish a sinner Because his justice must be avenged. His law must be honored. And when he punishes a a sinner, then that's an act of his justice. But when he brings discipline, it is for the good of the believer and for the glory of God. Christians are disciplined for their profit and advantage. And punishment is... It's done simply for God's glory. But in discipline, it's done for our good and His glory. So there's profit in it for us. Punishment is laid on someone in anger. God strikes in His wrath, but when He disciplines, it's done in love. God disciplines out of love because we know that if we are left without discipline, or He knows that if we are left without discipline, then we will bring more misery on ourselves than His gentle hand of discipline will bring. Now we must soak this in that whenever we face trouble or affliction in our lives there is nothing punitive in it. We must never say God is punishing me for my sin. Because God does not do that. And when we talk that way. It is because we have become weak in our faith. God is disciplining you and not punishing you. He is correcting you and straightening your path, not smiting you by His wrath. And there's a vast difference. There is no wrath in His heart for His children. He does not hate us. He loves us. He is disciplining us because of that great love for us. There may be some of you here this morning who are under the discipline of God. And if you're not, then you will be at some point in your life. And I have hope that this message will be profitable for us this week as we look at God's divine discipline of his children. And then we will look at in a few weeks our response to his discipline if we do not understand God's discipline we will struggle and so I trust that over these few messages we will come to a greater understanding of God's discipline to his children and our response to that discipline so first let's see this morning the Christian faith is a life or death struggle against evil the Christian faith is a life or death struggle against evil We have a shift from the metaphor of running. If you remember, we talked about running the race with endurance last week to kind of like this this battle going on or or a boxing match. The verse starts out with your struggle, which is just one Greek word, antagonismai, where we get our English word antagonist. The idea is striving against something. And so it was to exert strenuous effort. Now, in ancient times, they didn't put on boxing gloves and enter the ring ready to, to you know box it out and do some damage to to their opponent. They instead would battle with no gloves and and were ready to really hurt their opponent and sometimes even bring death. You didn't get into a ring unless you were ready to go against a powerful enemy that was determined to bring you down. The verse says, in your struggle against sin. Sin is the enemy that wants to bring you down and beat you to a pulp and leave you left for dead. In fact, look at what he says. He says, you have not resisted to the point of the shedding of your blood. What is he talking about? He says, none of them have become martyrs for their faith. And he's saying this against the backdrop of what he had just declared in Hebrews chapter 11 about Jesus and that Jesus had shed his blood on the cross. The author is implying that there may be a time in the not so distant future that they will shed their blood for their faith. The image here should be very clear to us and that is that this Christian faith that we live out is an intense battle. And it's a Life and death struggle against evil that could even result in martyrdom. Now, look what the author says. Our struggle is against sin. Against sin. That you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I want us to notice a few things when it comes to sin. In particular, two things, and then we'll notice some more things. But first, two things in particular things. Sometimes, sometimes the evil, the sin, the evil is without. Sometimes the evil is without. What I mean by that is that sometimes the evil is outside of us. It is out there in the world. Remember Hebrews 11, he's just gone through all the terrible things that had happened to the Old Testament believers, the mocking, the scourgings, the imprisonments being sawn in two, put to death by the sword. All these happen because evil men do evil things. And these people lived and proclaimed the righteousness of God among them. Not only that, but remember what, what said about Jesus, that he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Sometimes the evil is out there. Listen to what John said in his gospel. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. When we live our lives in obedience to God, then it's going to expose our works. or Our works will expose to the, to, to the world around us what is going on. And so we should ask ourselves this morning, does my life, does the life I live, is it exposing the evil that is around me? Is it doing that in my life? And so I'd encourage you this morning to ask yourself, does the life that I am living, is it exposing the evil that is around me this morning? Not only that, but not only do we see not only do we see that, but we also see that the evil not only is it without, but it's within. It's within. So what do we mean by that? Well, if we say that evil is without, meaning out there, what does evil within mean? It means that it's in you. It means that it's within you. Sin here, in this verse, is personified as a combatant that must be overcome in our lives. Sin seeks to destroy us. And as followers of Christ, we're called to contend against sin. Sin seeks to quench faith and kill us. And we must strive against it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Even though we are followers of Christ, we are constantly in battle against the lust of our flesh. Our flesh constantly looks to sinful practices. These Hebrew believers were in danger of the sin of turning away from faith in Christ as they faced persecution. They were in danger of the sin of unbelief. We all have sinful desires within us. Don't miss the point that the life of a believer is a constant battle. We make war against sin in our life. We are in this intense conflict with evil that is without, out there, and is within. It's out there and within. Don't miss what Jesus said, if you were of the world The world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The battle without and the battle within. Not only that, but we must resist and strive against evil, even if it means the shedding of our blood. We must resist and strive against evil, even if it means the shedding of our blood. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone could come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Mark eight thirty four and 35. Jesus has made it abundantly clear that the call to salvation is a call to lose your life. He's not speaking about wearing a nice cute piece of jewelry. He's saying to the people, come and die. Come and die to yourself. The man who took up the cross was on their way to an execution, not some sort of jewelry party. Jesus was giving the warning that if anyone was going to follow after him, then they must be ready to engage and even possibly be put to death. And not only that, but we have to be ready to, to put to death our sinful flesh. And so, he's saying, if you want to follow me, you got to be ready to die physically, but not only ready to die physically, but you must be ready to put to death your sinful flesh. We are to strive against sin to the point of shedding of blood. We must understand that the call is not just to let go and let God. We like to say that. A lot, we hear that in Christian circles. Well, you know what? You just need to let go and let God. That sounds real super spiritual, doesn't it? Let go and let God. It sounds good. We hear it being said. But the point is that you would strive against sinful desires. Now, obviously, we trust in God and we battle against sin in His strength. But there's no room for us to be lazy in the battle against sin. There's no room for you to say, well, I'm just going to let go and let God. There's no room for that. Yes, you trust God, but you strive against sin. And you cannot strive against something passively. You can't do it. Oh, that we would... Say like the Apostle Paul when he declared, For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Are you ready to be imprisoned and even die for the name of Jesus? We only get to that point by walking with Him day by day, by striving against evil. Even if it means the shedding of your blood. You might ask, well, How can I strive against evil? How do do we strive against evil? Well, you know what? That's a great question. In order to strive against evil, we have to get the right perspective. We have to get the right perspective. Listen, the point of the author writing this on the heels of what he has just said is writing it in light of those who had been stoned and sawn in two and put to death by the sword, along with Jesus, who is crucified. The point is that you put your situation in proper perspective. Most likely, your situation could be worse. Isn't it funny how, when you think you have it hard, you see someone who has it much worse, suddenly you don't have it so hard? Have you ever had to shed your blood for your faith? I doubt it. But if we're willing to abandon our faith under simple trials, what will we do when blood starts flowing? The lesson for us is to learn. Uh, for us to learn is this: unless you are being tortured for your faith, or horribly mistreated, or facing execution, then there's always someone who has it worse than you. And if they've endured then you can also endure so get the right perspective but not only that look to Jesus. how can we go through this struggle there's evil without there's evil within we must resist to the point of shedding of our blood. we must have the right perspective. how can we handle all this? Well we look to Jesus. remember the author has just told them to consider. Jesus because He had endured such great hostility and Jesus didn't deserve any of it. We deserve far worse than we actually receive. Imagine if we had to be repaid for every sin that we committed. So the next time you walk through a trial, rather than grumbling and complaining or shaking your fist at God, remember to look to Jesus who suffered innocently for you, who was was not innocent. Think about what you really deserve if God gave you perfect justice. The Christian faith is a life or death struggle against evil and you will endure it by faith what God has allowed you to suffer by looking to Jesus. The question is, where do we get the understanding to be able to endure God's divine discipline When it comes to our life. And I think this answers it for us. God's word. Enables his children. To endure God's discipline. God's word. Enables his children. To endure God's discipline. Look at what the author writes. He says to them. And have you forgotten the exhortation. That addresses you. As son. And then he quotes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The point we must understand is that the author of Hebrews is citing Scripture. He is referring his readers back to God's Word. If we want to endure God's divine discipline, we will do so by His Word. And so, in order to do that, we must know His Word. What is key in this is what the Scripture says, because the Scripture, he cites is addressed directly to God's sons for this reason we notice this. First, that we can't apply and live by the Scripture unless we are His children. We can't apply and live by the Scripture unless we are His children. The text is addressed directly to God's sons or children. The male gender is often used because inheritance is passed through the son. The point I want us to know is that we can't live by the Scripture unless we are the children of God. And no one is a child of God by natural birth, but only through spiritual birth, through faith in Christ. John 3 makes this clear, as well as Paul when he wrote that all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.36 If you are not a child of God through faith in Christ, then you are not under God's loving discipline. But instead... You are under God's wrath and judgment, punishment, not discipline. God only disciplines His children. He pours out His wrath on those who are not His children. So, you, in order to escape God's judgment, you must believe in Christ as Savior. And we can't apply and live by God's Word unless we are His children. Secondly, if we are His children, then we must know His Word to apply His Word. You must know it to apply it. I've said this before, but you can apply something or you can't apply something that you don't know. If we do not have the knowledge of the Word of God, how are you going to apply that to your life? Commentaries are divided as to whether this is a rhetorical question or not. When it says, have you forgotten? Either way, whether someone has actually forgotten or they just never learned it, what the Scripture teaches is that the result is the same. They won't apply it. How often do we fall into this trap of forgetting God's Word, especially when we're in the midst of the trial? How often do we respond to something according to our personality, or our culture, or our history, because we don't know God's Word. And so, therefore, we do not respond to people or trials in accordance to God's Word because we don't know God's Word. We don't know how we're supposed to respond to it. So instead, we just respond in the kind of person that we are. We must know His Word to apply His Word. What this leads to is this, that God's Word speaks to us as His children to encourage and correct us. So, God's Word, the Bible, speaks to us Ask his children to encourage and correct. It's interesting because the author calls the verse from Proverbs there. He says it's an exhortation. Sometimes that's word, that word is translated encouragement. Often God's word is an encouragement to us. Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word reproof there is the same noun form of the verb in Hebrews 12.5. It's an act of criticism, of trying to convince someone of wrongdoing. So the author of Hebrews pulls this verse from Proverbs 3 and tells them God's addressing it to you as sons. What the Bible says, God says personally to us. The Bible, the living Word of God, is what God has used to speak to men in every single generation. It is a holy, it has a voice, it speaks of God. The Holy Spirit is always present in the Word of God. And He speaks in it to the church in all ages. It is through God's Word that He communicates directly with us. And so as you read your Bible, I would encourage you to ask God To apply it to you personally. In areas where you need reproof. In areas where you need correction. So that you will be adequately equipped for every good work. So we've seen that this Christian life is a life or death struggle against evil. That God's word enables his children to endure his discipline. Finally, let's see what these verses teach us about God's discipline. God's word teaches us that God disciplines his children out of love. Verses 5 and 6 reveal this to us. It revealed a lot about the discipline of God. But before we get into it, I want us to know four things real quick. First, notice the best of God's children need discipline. The last part of verse 6 says, Every son. Not some sons, every son. All Christians have faults. All Christians need correction. Secondly, God will correct all his adopted children. He may let the people that do not know him live their life of sin, but he will not ignore the failure of his own children. If someone is sinful, it's a sure sign, and they, they are never disciplined, it's a sure sign that they're alienated from God. Thirdly, God acts as father, and no good parent will take lightly the faults of their children. Our very relation to our children and our love for them should be what causes us to take notice. And God's affection for us is the same way. Fourthly, God disciplines his children out of love. So let's break this down. Discipline is not punishment, as we already said. Discipline is not punishment. I said this at the beginning of the message. We have to understand that discipline is not the same thing as punishment. God's punishment is from his wrath against sin. His discipline from his love for his children. God punishes as an act of judicial relationship, as judge. God disciplines as an act of familial relationship, as father. Discipline is for training. Punishment is for payment those who fall under discipline have already had their sins paid for by christ punishment is god's demand for justice there is no restorative nature in it under discipline god is not seeking justice because christ has paid for our sin but instead god is seeking to correct our faults and sinful behavior to develop holiness in us now none of this is to say that discipline is not painful Because often, discipline is very painful. There are times that God disciplines and it's directly related to a specific sin in the life of His children. But there are also times when it's not the consequence of sin. There are times that God disciplines us to develop growth in us. Discipline does not always remove earthly consequences to our sin either. There are times that our consequences are far less because of God's grace however there are times that if we refuse to repent that God's discipline is so severe that it leads to even death we may lose rewards as his children but we will never lose our salvation not only is discipline not punishment but we must take we must not take discipline lightly the author is quoting from proverbs says to not regard lightly the discipline of the lord So when it says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, that means, uh, what that means is you just kind of shrug it off. You're just like, eh, whatever. It means to act like it's no big deal. It is the detail of God's providential care for His children. Have you ever had something happen to you and you thought it is just bad luck? Ever done that? Something kind of bad happens like, oh, that's just bad luck. Or that's just fate. In fact, that's often the first thought that pops into our mind, right? When something bad happens, our first thought is, oh, that's just bad luck. We act like everything that happens as Christians, and I'm not sure why we act this way, but we act like everything that happens from the tiniest of things to the greatest just just happens. We act like it's just by chance, that it's just chance that this happened. There's nothing that happens to you on the face of this earth that is by chance. Nothing. Chance is is like a mathematical term that, that relates to probability. There is nothing that happens in your life that is just by chance relating to probability. God controls every single last detail of our lives he says he has every hair on your head numbered. I know that's few hairs for me but he has every hair numbered and so if you go through some trial in your life and or if God brings some discipline in your life and you are like, well well whatever then you are regarding God's discipline as lightly. If you grit your teeth and you struggle through it, but you refuse to see God's loving hand in it, then you are regarding God's discipline as lightly. If you refuse to take the trial to heart and examine yourself and ask God to help you in it and to grow through it, then you are regarding God's discipline as lightly. We can use Job as an example. When his servants were murdered and his flock stolen... Job did not say, oh, I'm going to get them. When lightning struck some of his servants and flocks killing all but one man, Job did not say, boy, that's terrible luck. When a tornado hit his house where his ten children lived, killing them all, he did not say, well, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. What did he do? He looked at the sinful actions of evil men and the natural disasters that struck as all coming from God. Satan, yes, was the immediate cause of what happened. Yes, but Satan had to have permission from God in order to do anything that he did to Job. Remember, Satan goes to God and who brings up Job's name? Wasn't Satan, it's it's God. Oh, have you considered my servant Job, by the way? And what does Job say? After all these disasters, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I think what happens when a major problem occurs in our life that makes it obvious that it could be God's discipline, we see it and and we understand that it could be God's discipline. But when some minor frustration or irritation enters our life, we rarely think that that could be God bringing discipline to us. So we regard it lightly and we blow it off. Let me give you an example from my own life so I don't make an illustration of someone else. One of my struggles is I don't like to be late. I don't like being late. I never have liked being late. In fact, it frustrates me to no end. I like a schedule. I've always liked a schedule. And I like to maintain my schedule. That's why when I'm running late, it drives me nuts. But you ever notice that if you're that kind of person, when you are running late, that's when you hit traffic? You ever notice that? Or when everything seems to go wrong, when you're that kind of person, you're trying to get somewhere, and and you hate being late, but everything goes wrong? How often do I look at that as an opportunity to develop patience in my life through God's discipline? How often do I say, okay, God, you are doing this for a purpose and a reason. You are bringing this discipline in my life To develop patience in me, a man who is greatly impatient. Instead, I get mad. And sometimes I even yell at the person in the car in front of me who cannot hear me. What is the point of that? And I sit there and I say things like, Why don't you just hurry up? Or I don't have time for this. Or why are you driving so slow in the passing lane? What are you doing? Because I'm work-driven, when I get sick or if I miss something, I will sit there and steam over the fact that that I'm going to, now i got all this stuff to make up and I'm so far behind schedule and and I don't even know what I'm going to do now. Rather than try to see God's hand in it. Or how about this? When a kid is whining and sometimes for no reason at all, What's our response? Would you stop your whining? Or maybe your spouse makes a comment that you don't want to hear. Or maybe someone calls you to sell you something and they get pushy. Or maybe your car breaks down at the worst possible time. Or in my case, your washing machine breaks down at the worst possible time. Why don't we ever stop and think that perhaps, perhaps, these are gods using these times to discipline and grow us to show us our flaws. If we are ever going to grow in godliness, we must look at every single trial that comes our way as God's loving discipline. I'm not saying that you over-spiritualize everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that every trial that enters your life as God's loving discipline. I'm telling you, the things in your life do not just happen by chance. That's the most unchristian thought you could possibly have. That God is not in control of anything, and that everything that goes on is just chance. I was once having a conversation with a man that tried to tell me that everything happens by chance. Well, at least the small things. And he said, God doesn't care if you come in and stub your toe. He doesn't care about that. I said, well, what do you mean he doesn't care? I said, what if you come in and you stub your toe, and as you're reaching down to to check on your toe, you reach down there and you lose your balance. And as you lose your balance, you start to fall backwards. And as you fall backwards, you fall on the concrete, you hit your head and you die. Does he care then? He got mad. Walked out. Nothing happens by chance. Look at Him as opportunities to trust Him. Don't take discipline lightly. Look at it and say, okay, God, what are you... What's going on? What are you teaching me in this moment? Thirdly, when we must... when We must refuse to grow weary. I don't know why I said when. We must refuse to grow weary under God's discipline. We must refuse to grow weary under God's discipline. The author says, don't grow weary when you are reproved by him. This is the idea of losing heart. It means to give up. Have you ever seen someone just dejected like a sport team or something like that? They just kind of give up because they are finished. Sometimes as we're going through this world, we feel hopeless as if God has abandoned us. Have you ever been there, Christian? Have you ever been in a time where it is as if God Himself has ceased to care for you. And and you're like, I'm a needy and afflicted child. God, do you even care? You pray for your suffering to end, but it doesn't end. You seek grace to bear the burden, but you're filled with self-will and impatience and unbelief. Instead of the peace of God ruling your heart, unrest sits on your heart, on the throne of your life? Instead of quietness, there's resentment. Instead of thanksgiving, there's thoughts against God. Have you ever been so overcome, you just wonder, God, where are you in my life? Oh, we must refuse to grow weary because the trials that you go through is evidence that God loves you and you are His child. However, the person who grows weary and faints is self-absorbed and self-focused on their trials. And they can't see God at work. And they miss God's purpose and perspective in what He's doing. They are like Jacob when Jacob declared, All these things are against me, God. And yet God was working all these things for Jacob. Remember Joseph when his brothers threw him in a pit, and they sold him into slavery and and told their dad that a wild beast must have attacked and killed their brother. Later, Joseph responds to his brothers by saying, What you meant for evil against me, God has meant for good to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Christian, do not grow weary under God's discipline. It is... Sign and evidence that God loves you. And lastly, God always treats us with love, even when discipline is severe. Look at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Now you might say, well, doesn't the Lord love everyone? The correct biblical answer to that is yes, but not in the same way. You see, this is something that many struggle with. We struggle with, what do you mean yes, but not in the same way? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. I love my kids. Do they get on my nerves at times? Yep. Do they bother me at times? Yep. Do they have faults? Yes. But I love my kids. Guess what? I love my kids more than I love your kids. You know why? Because they're my kids. They're my kids. I love them in a special way. God loves His children in a special way as well. And that is manifested through discipline. When I go out with my kids and my kids, maybe we go to a restaurant or we go to the store or we go elsewhere. And if my kids act up, I will discipline them. They know when I'm coming to grab their ear. But when I see someone else's kid act up, I don't discipline them because they're not my kids. I discipline my kids because I love them and I want them to learn to submit to authority. And guess what? Sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I discipline my kids out of anger because I'm irritated with something that they did. And that's wrong. But here's the thing. God never, ever makes a mistake in His discipline he always every single time doesn't discipline out of irritation doesn't discipline out of frustration, doesn't discipline because he's angry. Every single time that God brings discipline in our life, it's for our good. He does it out of love. It's for our good and for his glory. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 tells us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Now I understand that some of you may have grown up in a home where you've had uh, had an abusive father. This means that you will have to work harder at trusting God's love when he disciplines you because you have a father view of what discipline is. There are times when God disciplines so severe and, 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 and it hurts like when it says that He chastises every son He receives. Well, that word chastise means to flog and the word receives means to receive favorably. What is important is that the verse says that He chastises not some sons but every son that He receives. This includes those who walk closely with Him as well as those who do not and are immature in their faith. Everyone gets chastised, it says. But this is what we must understand and where our faith gets exercised. When God brings discipline in your life, and perhaps even severe discipline, this is when the devil will attack. And this is when those thoughts will enter your mind. Is this how a loving God treats his children? And if Satan can get you to doubt God's love to doubt God's sovereignty over your situation, then he succeeded in driving a wedge between you and your loving Heavenly Father. We do not interpret God's love for us by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. You cannot look at your circumstance and use that circumstance to determine God's love for you. But instead, you interpret your circumstance by God's love for you. Again, we think of Joseph and all that he went through because of his brothers. He was imprisoned because he decided to do the right thing. And he resisted the advances of a married woman. And at any moment, he could have doubted God's love. At any moment, he could say, God, my brothers hate me. They threw me in a pit. Then they sold me into slavery. And then I go to this guy's house, Potiphar's house, and I do great things. And then, and then his wife tries to seduce me and I refuse her advances. And then I'm thrown in jail. And then I interpret the dream of the cupbearer and the baker and this cupbearer has forgot all about me even though he said he would mention me to Pharaoh. But Joseph's faith remains strong. He clung to the love God had for him and to his sovereign goodness over every circumstance of his life. Joseph's love and submission to God through his life is an example for us to respond to and follow God's loving discipline. We don't find Joseph sulking, but we find him taking everything and using it as an opportunity. He understood the sovereignty of God in his life and he remained faithful. In closing, I ask this. What child is there that has not received the chastisement of their father? Pastors who preach the gospel, I'm sure, have received chastisement. The prophets of old, Abraham and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Malachi, all have received the chastisement from God. The kings of the Bible, the Davids, the Solomons, the Jehoshaphats, the Hezekiahs, all knew of God's chastisement. There is not one in heaven who is there who has spared the rod of chastisement. Some might say, well, what about Jesus? The Son of God, the sinless one, was he chastised? To the host of earth and heaven and the church replied, The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. He suffered, bore the cross, endured the curse greater than any of us ever could. He endured ten thousand fold the chastisement that any of us could ever possibly bear. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary When reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son who he receives. Oh church that we would fully understand. The reasons. Or that fully understand that God chastises us. And we may not really understand why. We may not understand the discipline. He may not give us an explanation. But we must trust him knowing that he always has our best interest at hand, that it is always, always, always for our good in his glory. I can't help but wonder. What about those who do not know Christ? Where does their comfort come from? You see, the Christian gets comfort knowing they are a child of God and that our affliction is for our good. We may not understand it always, but we know it's for our good. But what about the non-Christian? What do they take comfort in? I understand how at times they can be happy when things are going great and when they have money and when everyone is doing well and no one is sick. But where do they draw their comfort when they lose their wife or a child dies or when their health is gone and death is knocking at their door? How do they find comfort? Listen, church, without Christ there is no hope. There is no comfort. And even if there were no heaven and there were no hell and there were no afterlife, I would still recommend being a Christian because it makes the heart happy. My faith enables me to bear my troubles. What breaks the back of the world should seem to the Christian like nothing. What destroys the spirit of the world should seem like the Christian, like light afflictions to us. And when we are in the depths of darkness, we have light because Jesus is the source of our light. Oh, that we would understand that God disciplines those he loves. And I would much rather have the rod of discipline from my heavenly Father than the sword of God's wrath cast on me. I would rather be chastised with the righteousness of God than condemned with the wicked of the world. And as we'll look at in a few weeks, our response to God's discipline is one of submission, trusting Him as our sovereign Heavenly Father to endure the struggle against evil. And we must understand what the Scripture teaches is about God's divine discipline, what it tells us about it. And then, whether that trial is a major trial or a minor one, we must submit to him in faith, looking at his discipline as a sign of his love for us. So what about you, Christian? God disciplines all his children. Maybe today you're in the heart of discipline. Maybe you will eventually walk through it. Take it as a sign of God's love for you. I don't know how the Lord possibly may have spoken to you through this message this morning. I want you to know I'll be standing down front. And if you need to pray, or you need prayer for you, or you want to pray on your own, you can do that. I just want you to know I'm available for you this morning. Maybe this morning you are walking through God's discipline. You just need some prayer. Maybe this morning you would reflect on your own life and you'd say, I don't know that I've ever been disciplined. I don't know that I've ever gone through that. God's wrath is on me, not His discipline. And maybe you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ this morning. Whatever God has said to you, I want to give you that chance to respond this morning. Let's close with a time of prayer.